I'm going to be preaching about a miracle today. It's found in John chapter 2. I'm going to read through verse 11. Probably a familiar story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Uh, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone gives the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Today we're going to look at this story at three different levels. First, I want to just look at it at a ground level. Let's try to get into the story and understand what's going on here. This is a wedding happening in a little town of Cana, a pretty insignificant town. Would have been a pretty common occurrence to see weddings like this. But for that little town, a wedding would have been a big deal. Many people would have been invited. It would have been a multi-day celebration because it would have helped the economy of the town. And we, we can, you can read a lot about this from, uh, from archaeologists and, and people who study these things. Talk about how important ceremonies like marriages were. Because all these people would come from, in town, from out of town to stay for a few days. And they'd have to find a place to stay. And they'd have to find a place for their donkeys or whatever else they brought. And well, they might need to buy a basket that, that was hand woven while they were there. And they might need to get some clothes if something happened to their clothes. And so... Sooner or later, the wedding becomes this big economic event for the whole town. It's a big deal. And so to run out of wine would have been an even bigger deal. If you run out of wine, that means the party is over. In fact, there's evidence that suggests that the the bridegroom who's in charge of the party here, and, and this master of ceremonies, master of the feast, they could actually possibly be sued in this culture for running out of wine. Because the whole town would have lost out on income from other things if the party had to suddenly stop. This is not just as simple as running out of a little bit of wine. This is a major community crisis. And so Mary, not named by name in the Gospel of John at all, but but Jesus' mother Mary, pulls on Jesus' sleeve and just simply says, They have no wine. We don't know if she's asking him to do anything about it. It may just be factual. Like, hey, we better pack up our stuff. They have no wine. 
But apparently from the story, she's asking Jesus to do something about this, even though this is supposedly his first miracle. Now, it's probably not as simple as asking Jesus to go to the store and buy some wine. We're talking about needing a fair amount of wine in what would be a very costly trip to the store. There's nowhere probably near Cana where you can easily get this. And so Jesus answers his mother strongly, saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, now we get kind of offended by that, but, but Jesus calls his mother woman later when he's on the cross and sort of pairing her up with John, who's going to take care of her. This is, this is just a title that, that we wouldn't, you know, if I called my wife woman, I would get smacked. But in this culture, this word is used much more as just, just a term of address. Although the rest of the sentence what does this have to do with me? In the, in the Greek is even a stronger sentence. It, that doesn't come through as strongly in, in English. But it, it, the sentence really says, what's it to you to me? So it's, hard to, it's hard to translate. What's it to you to me? What, what is it to me? What's it to you that this is happening? It is a strong, not a rude, not a, not a mouthing off to his mother kind of sentence. But it is a, an emotional response Jesus seems to give. And then he says this sort of cryptic My hour has not yet come, which we'll talk about in a little bit, although apparently his hour has kind of come because he does take care of the wine problem. He grabs the, he tells the the servants there, the people who are working, to uh, grab these stone water jars. These would have been large jars. We, We get a lot of details here, 20 or 30 gallons of water in each. And these would have had some kind of way to get the water out or to dump them out or to scoop them out so that the, the Jews who came to the party could wash. Because part of, a big part of, of Jewish ritual was needing to be clean, spiritually clean before an event like this. And so they have a lot of water. Apparently it's a big party because they have six of these jars that are empty. That's a lot of ceremonial washing. Now anytime they would have left, they probably would have had to wash before every meal. They probably would have had to wash when they come back. But still, there's a lot of people going through that much water that's specifically for this purpose of, of Ceremonial cleansing. cleansing. He has them fill this with water. The servants, we never hear about them or what their response would be. But these are some pretty astonishing servants that are like, okay, all right, I'll do this. And then they take the wine before even they say they've tried it in the text to the master of the feast. Of course, they probably are going to get in trouble for not watching this and running out of wine ahead of time. But the, the master of the feast is excited, goes and shows the bridegroom, and everyone says, Man, this is the best wine. See, you wouldn't give the best wine first. You, would, you wouldn't give the best wine last, you'd give it first, right? Because as people are drinking the wine, the quality of the wine makes less and less of a concern, right? Okay? This happens in bars. The first beer is a good beer, the second one's okay, By fourth or fifth, nobody cares the brand or the taste of the beer because that is what's happening as people are drinking it. This is what happens at the parties. You always always use your best wine first and you use really terrible wine when nobody's going to remember what that wine tasted like anyway. But this bridegroom is saying, hey, everybody's telling this bridegroom, hey, you did it the opposite way. You had good wine and then moved to great wine when no one would care. And so this bridegroom gets all this popularity. But of course, it was Jesus that whole time. And so Jesus is believed in. 
He manifests His glory in this thing that John calls a sign, and the disciples begin to believe in Him. The disciples at this point are following Him, but have not really seen Him do miracles like this. And so at the ground level, there's a really simple message to this. We get to see Jesus' abundant love and joy. That He pours out this wine like this to keep the party going. We miss this, I think, sometimes as Christians. We tend to think this Christianity thing's got to be all serious. But in the Bible, Jesus is always at a party. He's always at a party. In fact, he gets pretty frustrated at religious events. He is at a party with people who like to party a lot. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration. And we serve a God that would keep the party going. That's the kind of God that we serve. And so we, we get this wonderful picture of Jesus Pouring out this blessing, changing this water into wine, but the celebration it can keep going, that the community can be saved in the meantime. But of course, there's more going on here. We know that because the Gospel of John uses this word sign very carefully. In John, whenever we talk about a sign, there are seven of them, by the way, leading up to the raising of Lazarus. And then there's the actual Uh, crucifixion and resurrection, which doesn't get the term sign, because all the signs seem to be pointing towards that. In fact, this is the first sign, and the signs tend to work in the Gospel of John like an unveiling, like pulling back a curtain. And so later, the signs are much more clear, and they're much more direct, and they're much more tied to Jesus' speeches, where where He says... He feeds the 5,000 and he says, I am the bread of life. And it's very easy to understand how the sign is connected to who Jesus is. But this is the first one. And so the curtain is just starting to pull back a little bit. And so to understand this, we've got to zoom out a little bit. We've got to get sort of an airplane view of this story to understand what's really going on. Four little details help us understand what's really going on. First is, is the very beginning of the passage. You probably didn't even realize it as I read it because we skipped over it. But the text starts out on the third day. On the third day. Scholars have debated this for years as to what John is talking about. Third day of what? Third day of the week. Third day since the previous thing happened. There's no real time reference in, in the gospel to help us understand what he means by the third day. But of course... Later in the gospel, the third day becomes a really key phrase. When it is on the third day that Jesus comes up from the grave. Clue number two is this idea of the hour. Jesus uses this phrase hour throughout the gospel of John. And it becomes clear as it unfolds that hour really refers to his death, resurrection, and his full glory. The hour is the moment where everything that he is and everything that he's doing really comes to a crux. And so it's weird that he would mention it here. I mean, think about it. Why Mary says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what is it to you? The time of my death has not yet come. It's a weird response. Like, this happens a lot with Jesus, where they're sort of talking, but they're talking past each other when he talks to people. He's talking about things on a much deeper level than people normally are. But what I think he understands when he says his hour has not yet come is that his hour is starting. After all, he does do the miracle. He does bring the wine. 
But what he understands is that this is the start of my hour. This is the start of my public ministry. It's kicking off right now. But, but in the back of his mind, he knows how it ends. Maybe that's why he's a little bit emotional with Mary when he asks, when she asks him, because he knows how this story ends. He knows that death has to follow for this thing to really come to fruition. The jars is the third, the fourth, the third detail. That we have these jars for the Jewish rites of purification. And one of the things that Jesus is saying a lot in, in, as he's on earth is that he's coming to fulfill the Jewish law. Here, he symbolically literally fills it. We, always, we, we struggle a little bit, I think, with the Jewishness of Jesus. What's his relationship to the Jewish faith of his day? But here we get this wonderful picture. That what, you know what he's going to do? He's going to take those, those Jewish jars of purification. He's going to take that old religion and he's going to pour some new life into them. This is also clued in by the fourth detail, which is the actual images of water and wine. If you know your Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, water and wine is really, really important. Okay? Jesus calls himself the living water later in association with one of the other signs. Wine becomes the symbol of blood, right? We, we celebrate this when we, sacri- sac- when we do the sacrament of communion. Wine becomes blood. In, in the Gospel of John, uh, as in some of the other Gospels, Jesus talks about his death as a cup that can't pass from him and that the disciples can't partake in. And so we see in this de- these details, the third day, the hour, the jars, and the images of water and wine, that Jesus has this understanding that something else is going on. That he has this understanding that we're building towards something. That this is the first sign, but the last sign is going to be a crucifixion and a resurrection. And if you read John straight through, you would get this. But upon just reading the story, you're only getting a little glimpse of it. It's only hinted at and it's not really explained. The airplane message of this passage is this. That Jesus is doing more than saving the party. He's saving the world. And this is the starting point. Kind of a silly starting point, isn't it? It's not near as important a miracle, we would think, as some other things. But that is where he starts. And John picks up on these symbols to guide us there. Okay, so we looked at this story on a ground level. We sort of zoomed out to an airplane level. Now I want to zoom in on four particular problems that people tend to have with this passage. One is people have trouble with how Jesus talks to his mom, but, but I've already tried to say that, that calling her woman is, is a term of address, that he is maybe emotional in this moment, kind of thinking about his death in his reference to the hour. But he's not being rude. In fact, Mary doesn't respond to, her, to him at all. Somehow Mary knows that he's going to do something because she tells the servants to listen to him. I don't know how much Mary would have understand, but she wasn't offended by his words, and I don't think we need to be either. The second challenge from this text is a lot of people have trouble with the idea of making wine. We have had a tendency in some traditions, not as much in Presbyterian churches, but if you were raised Methodist, you probably heard this, that alcohol is just bad. Well, the the challenge with that is that in the Bible, Jesus makes wine and he drinks wine. So I don't know how to make that argument. 
Now, the Bible has a ton to say about drunkenness, by the way. And so the idea of drinking to really change how you feel or to give away control, that is not considered good. But I don't know how you can make an argument, especially from a passage like this, that wine is all bad. You want to talk to me about that later, that's fine. But that is one of the challenges to this text. And I don't know how you work your way around that. Particular challenge number four, number number three. People come to this passage and, and some would argue that their miracles are just impossible. You've probably met these people, right? That the natural world is all that there is and so a miracle must, be, um, must not be possible because it's not scientific or logical. The problem with that argument is that a miracle is by its very nature a violation of science and logic, right? How can you evaluate something that's a violation of logic and science by saying it can't be possible because it violates science and logic. It's like arguing against a color like purple because you can't smell it. It just doesn't add up. You have to evaluate based on the thing itself. And so in this story, people get all kinds of goofy uh, explanations that I think are just outside the text. Like, like one I heard was that actually these jars weren't being used for water, they were being used for wine. And so in the bottom was kind of the gunk left over from the wine. And when you put more water in, suddenly you've got wine again. That does not seem to me to explain how excited everyone is about how good the wine was. And so I tend to just look at the passage the way it's presented to say this is what happened. Uh, Maybe that's simple minded. I don't know. But it's what the text does. The idea of the scripture is that Jesus made the world... He made the laws of the world, and if he wants to violate them, that's his prerogative. This, however, brings us to the fourth challenge. That I think is is not a primary concern of this text, but this week has really been on my mind. If Jesus can do miracles, why doesn't he? Or why does he wait so long? In the language of our story, why does the wine run out in the first place? If Jesus is there and he knows that the wine is running out because we think he's God, that he knows all things, why does he let the the wine run out and let all the servants freak out before he comes with the abundance? (laughs) You saw the list when we prayed today. I have been heavily... uh, in attendance at the hospital the last couple of weeks. And I'm aware of a lot of other concerns that people have that weren't even mentioned in our prayer requests. I've had this conversation really directly a couple of times, and, and also it seems in hospital rooms, even if it's not the major point of conversation, it's hanging in the air. Where is God? Where is this abundant and loving God when I am going through so much? If God can bring healing, why doesn't He? Or why doesn't he sooner? I have thought about this question a lot and read all kinds of really nifty answers to it. And I have never found one I thought was satisfactory. Sometimes the world stinks. The world is broken. It is sinful. It is not how it is meant to be. That is why we are so outraged at how it sometimes goes down. And so I don't know that there's an answer to the why question of why we get emptiness and why the wine and joy sometimes run out in our lives. 
But I do know that as a church, we stand with the opportunity to bring hope. That we can point to signs, right? Stories like this one. Stories from our own lives. Stories from our Christian tradition. Stories of the cross. That even though Jesus may seem distant to us in this moment, we can remember the cross and remember that He didn't always stay distant. That He may feel distant, but He's still with us in the moment. And when people can't feel that, we have the opportunity to sit in the hospital room with them, to send them a card, to give them a call, to stop by and see how they're doing, to fill needs. We can bring fresh wine. We can remind people that the best wine is still to come. We can care. We can share meals. We can send cards. And we can come together on worship services on days just like this. And sing of these stories. And remind each other that we are forgiven. And sometimes maybe, maybe you don't feel that way. So you come in here and you you don't feel like singing joyful, joyful, we adore thee. So you just be quiet and you listen to everybody else as they sing it. Because your experience isn't the only experience that we're going through as a community. And maybe you feel down, but maybe somebody else is feeling the joy that you need right now. We remind this of each other in worship. We remind this of each other when we care about each other. We remind each other because we need to remember when the wine runs out. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your abundant blessings that you are with us and that you care for us. We remember so many that are going through so much right now. So many more that have unspoken requests that they don't even want to voice. Help us to trust in you when the wine runs out. When our joy is depleted, when we feel no peace, help us to remind each other of your love and your grace and your mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.